Hello you, uh, it's Mark Davison here, uh, I'm probably better known on the comedy circuit as Mr Susie and I've just done an interview for Comedy Bloggedy with Sarah Shulman, I hope you enjoy it. So Mark, how did you get into comedy? I've always been a comic actor, that's what I do for a living and I always wanted to do stand-up and I was never brave enough to go for it. So uh, my wife, when we went to Edinburgh as punters, we went in 2009 and my wife booked me on a stand-up course, which included a semi-compulsory showcase thing that you had to do at the end of it. So it sort of forced my hand and I loved it and I haven't looked back since. And what was your first gig like? Uh, it was terrifying really because I came from it from a, I came at it from an acting background and I was gigging as me. So the very first gig... I forgot all my lines uh, and was suddenly the most exposed I've ever been on a stage because as an actor you sort of you're sort of hiding behind roles and and you're protecting yourself to a certain extent whereas stand-up is especially the stand-up I started doing was all about me a heightened version of me but it was still me so to forget my lines and this is the first time I've ever been me on a stage and to dry was was terrifying and I just, I learned instantly in, in that very first gig that you just got to barrel through it, which is why I was drawn towards clowning and more kind of playful stuff, because it happened on my very first gig. So, well, I don't know what I'm doing. I've got no idea what I'm doing. I'm just just making stuff up now. So what kind of material did you do at your first gig? My first gig was uh, anecdotes about me that were surreal. So there's no way they actually happened but I, I was presenting them in a deadpan way as if, yeah, this is this is a slice of what it's like to be me. So things like I was dating a Smurf. I was going out with, with uh, Smurfette, and there was all kinds of inter-Smurf inter jealousy, and I ended up accidentally crushing her to death in a tragic blue-tack misunderstanding. But I never, <laughs> I never acknowledged that it was... It, it it was all made up. I played it as if, yeah, this is what's happened to me and isn't it awful. Like Mr. Susie? Uh, well, sort of, except I think Mr. Susie is very obviously surreal and over the top, whereas, and one of the reasons I went into doing Mr. Susie was audiences would be confused because I looked fairly normal, I was dressed normally, and I was telling stories about going out with Smurfette. And sometimes they liked it, but very often they just didn't understand it. They'd sit there like, oh, this is rubbish. No, there's no way he's going out with a Smurf. Smurfs aren't, Smurfs aren't even real. It's like, no, no, I'm not asking you to accept it as truth. But, uh, yeah, so I think Mr. Susie came from a frustration of... I, I, I never fully found my voice, because I thought it was funny, but plenty of people just thought I was lying, which all stand-ups are lying. No one goes on stage and just says it like it is. That would be boring. So... Yeah, it, it was a strange time gigging as me. I, I did it for about a year, gigging as me. I never fully felt like I'd found my voice. So how often did you start gigging after your first gig? I threw myself into it because I loved it so much and, and I felt like the very first gig I'd done could not have gone more wrong and I still loved it. The, uh, I was instantly hooked. I was addicted. So, uh, yeah, I used to do three, four a week for for the first year. And I entered all the competitions and I didn't get anywhere and I got very frustrated with that, but I was gigging all the time. 
and even more frustrated that I never fully felt like I've found it. I know I want to do this. I know I love it. I know I have something to offer, I think. I just don't know quite what it is yet. And at what stage did you feel that you'd found that comic voice? Um, it came very suddenly. It came through getting to know Phil Burgers, Dr. Brown. Um, he used to run an amazing night in Hackney at the Railroad Cafe where it was it was a very, very experimental night. I mean, it, everything he's involved in is very alternative and very experimental, but this was even more so. And he would encourage comic performers and stand-ups to turn up and do stuff without thinking about it in advance. Just just go on stage and do something and be prepared to fail horribly. And I'd been to see the night and, and thought there was some fantastic things going on there. Really wanted to get on the stage. So he gave me a slot. He said, come back next month, but don't prepare anything in advance. Uh, and this audience know that that's the spirit of the thing, so they they won't judge you harshly. Just just go for it. And so I went on stage and started speaking in a very weird voice, which became Mr. Susie's voice. And it, it, it was sort of instant, really. It's like, I'm having far more fun doing this, mucking about like this with this stupid voice that at that stage I knew nothing about Mr. Susie, um, that I... I pretty much stopped gigging as me and and worked on Mr. Susie solidly since then, and that was three years ago. And did you find that you gigged as regularly after you found that comic voice as you did when you first started performing stand-up? No, because uh, it was obvious that I was going in a more alternative direction even than the the Smurf stories. And stand-up nights, although I did still do them and do still do them, it's harder to know where you fit in on those kind of nights. So I realised I needed to work on the character and I needed to find out where he belonged in the scene Uh, and to just gig three or four times a week at any stand-up night that'll have me wasn't conducive to that fine-tuning process. So no, I I, I stopped gigging as regularly. And now I sort of do it in fits and starts. I'll, I'll... I, I usually have at least one a week, but sometimes sometimes I'll I'll be doing loads, and then other times there's there's a bit of a a lull whilst I work on new stuff. And do you have a specific process that you go about when you write your material for Mr. Susie? Yes, I I talk to myself as Mr. Susie. I, I wander around, uh, not just at home either. I'm, I'm lucky I live near Hampstead Heath, so I've got a big open expanse of of not many people walking past me so I'm talking out loud as Mr Susie which must look insane but I I've like last year's show is not written down there there is no there's no text there's no word file uh, I I've got a recording of it so if I need to I could transcribe it but, uh, but even when I was gigging as me though I I never I never wrote stuff down I wanted it to be conversational I wanted it to appear like it was spontaneous and I found if I wrote it down, it would sound written. So the best way to, to keep that spontaneity and as if I've just thought of it, even if it's the same stuff, then then it has to start being spontaneous. It, it has to start from an actual conversation. So do you record every gig? No, I don't even do that because uh, I, I find it too um, difficult to watch myself back. I'm so hypercritical that um, it's just too painful. There's so much that's wrong with what I've 
done on stage and what I've said and why didn't I do this and how, why did I go down that avenue when this avenue is better? It's just too painful. So I I rely a lot on my wife. She's she's brilliant and my harshest critic, but she will tell it like it is. Uh, and and just kind of analysing stuff in my own head, I find a, a, a more pleasant experience and a, and a more useful experience rather than coldly going through every last, in my view, mistake. And you're also a musician and play the organ, piano, keyboard, DJ and have composed music. (laughs) 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 And have composed music for short films and theatre soundtracks. So do you feel that having such as... (laughs) I just read my TV, complete lies. (laughs) Uh, So do you feel that having such a strong sense of rhythm helps with writing and performing your jokes? Uh, well, that that's a... Mass- DJ Mark Davidson. <laughs> <laughs> my my DJ handle is DJMJD, uh, and you need to see it written down because it's kind of a mirror image. DJM, and then the JD is the wrong way around the other side, so it's like reflected. That's what a load of pretentious nonsense that is. Uh, and to be fair, I haven't DJed for about two years, uh, so that's a little bit out of date on my CV. <laughs> What's your first DJ gig like? Uh, it was great. In fact, I got together with my now wife after DJing. So, uh, yeah, uh, very happy memories. It was at the Bullet Bar in Kentish Town. Uh, don't look for it. It's not there anymore. I don't think. It might be. Uh, yeah, but I mean, I, I, music music is really important to me in real life, and it's very important to the comedy I do. I, I start with the hour-long shows for Mr. Susie. I start with music. They start with a soundtrack. Uh, it's not necessarily the soundtrack that will end up in the show, but I like to shape the the kind of the moods of the show via soundtrack. So, uh, yeah, at the moment I've got a thirty-three track playlist that is the sound of this new show, and probably about three songs will actually make it into the show. I'm going to be singing in this show as well and playing live. Uh, which is a bit scary. Uh, so, but in terms of whether music has has helped with the the pacing and and shape of what I do for comedy, it's, it has partly. But I come at this as a writer as well. I have a lot of writing experience, especially writing comedy, and uh, I I approach the hour long shows as feats of writing. There's three acts. There's beginning middle and end there's turning points there's tension there's character what characters want what they need what they get it's it's applying the rules of screenwriting to something that is a live medium and before you started doing stand-up but were kind of thinking about it was music something that you always wanted to incorporate in some way into your act yeah i think so music is is the thing that's probably most important to me outside of my um my my wife and my career uh i couldn't imagine a world without music so uh music is always going to be a big part of what i do whether it's stand up whether it's a comedy play whether it's a serious drama or whatever M- music will always be heavily involved and did you find that coming from a background of acting before you started doing stand up helped in your performance um, it, it helped in 
it, it was both a help and a hindrance. It, it, it was a help in that I had confidence being on a stage. I knew what it felt like to be on a stage in front of people. I wasn't, I mean, I, I get nervous, but not not um, prohibitively nervous, which people that have no background in performance sometimes find, oh my God, it's so scary, I can't put myself through that. So it helped in that sense. Uh, and when I moved into doing Mr. Susie, it helped that I have an understanding of how to build a character I think I'm quite a physical performer, so I don't just rely on voice and a microphone. I'm I'm kind of moving around, and it, it helped in that sense. What it didn't help with uh, was being free to go with stuff in the moment, which, unless you're specifically studying comedy, which I never did, uh, you're not you're not trained to deal with stuff that the audience might throw at you, metaphorically or literally. I've, I've had people throw a chair at me. Uh, I mean, he he was on crack, uh, which was interesting. Uh, yeah, so it it was the worst possible preparation in that stage and film. There's a respect, and you do this, and people watch and listen. Whereas comedy is much more vibrant, and the audience are much more a part of it. They can and absolutely should be involved if they feel they want to be. So you have to unlearn everything of fourth walls and stuff. It's it's a conversation, and they are very much part of it. And actually, I've in 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 learning to ignore acting training in that sense. That's my favourite bit: interacting with the audience and the thought that each show is unique, or trying to make it unique, based on what the audience are giving me and what I'm giving back as a result of what they're coming out with. Uh, that's that's the thrill of the live show. That's why doing live comedy is is the most exciting thing that I do. So do you prefer performing live than on screen? Uh, yeah, I think so. Uh, I think the biggest highs I've had in my career have been doing Mr. Susie in front of a live audience. I, I absolutely love doing camera stuff. Um, I love, I've just done a, a drama, the first drama I've done in 15 years, and, and I really, really enjoyed it. But there's nothing quite like riffing with an audience and going in directions that nobody not even me expected that that is singularly exciting and and no other uh aspect of my career offers me the chance to do that do you feel that you write your shows the hour-long shows for example the edinburgh shows that you perform in such a way that it will allow for a kind of spontaneity that you love. So last year when you had all the blow-up props <laughs> that the audience could hit each other with is <laughs> is a more extreme form of spontaneity written into a show than just sort of allowing for certain sections where you can improvise with the audience. Yeah, I deliberately build sort of playtime for the audience into the shows because I know, I know that I can't predict what's going to happen and that's good for me and hopefully the audience it, it does mean it goes wrong uh, if you get an audience that are just not up for it and you know that this whole section has to live or die by them getting into it and they're sitting there with their arms folded looking thoroughly miserable it's going to make for a god awful show but it's worth it I mean that that happens less often than than the good times when the audience go with it and and I'm, I'm forcing myself to MC more because there is no script when you MC, it's all completely what you get from the audience, and I can I can come with with an idea of right. I'm going to get them to do this, 
but then the, they may decide they're not going to do that. They're going to do something else, which is which is what happened. I emceed for Nick Helm on on Saturday as part of Nuts and Bolts, and um, yeah, we were just having a conversation. The audience were were like speculating on what two people who'd just gone out to the toilet were going to be doing, and then those two people came back and they entered into the spirit of it, and we just invented a story about what they'd just done, and and it was great. It, it, but there's no, you cannot plan for for what the, what's going to happen. How did you find the audiences in Edinburgh reacted and engaged with props and so many costume changes that uh, you were involved in your show? Well, there's one audience member who shrieked when I came back uh, in dressed as a pink Elvis. Oh, that was you. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, no, the, the costume changes... Uh, uh, yeah, but I shrieked in a good way. <laughs> yeah, no, it was, it was good. Uh, that was probably the most extreme reaction that a costume change. But I then gave you a standing ovation at the end. <laughs> yeah, no, it's it's all very much appreciated. Uh, it was a standing ovation of one, which which is better than none. But the rest of the audience were like, hey, "Who's she?" <laughs> um, yeah. The, the 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 beautiful thing about Edinburgh is you will get the whole range of emotions uh, and responses. With sometimes within a single show, certainly within a run. So. I had audiences, like, just to explain to people that, that didn't see the show, there's an extensive section where jazz is evil and is being created by a zebra, which is represented by a cuddly toy zebra, which I hand to an audience member. And because jazz is evil and is trying to stop what Mr. Susie's doing, I hand out an inflatable hammer, and it's another audience's member responsibility to, to deck the zebra. And it ends up with a, a, a the best times are when the audience got up and ran about and some of them even went outside at some point with you know one person's holding a zebra the other person's holding a hammer and they're trying to deck each other uh and i had the full range of uh no we're not going to do that so nothing happened for those sections and i had to beat the zebra up on my own to the other extreme where someone got so into smashing up the zebra that she popped the hammer and i've tried to do that since and i I can't. I don't know how hard she hit that zebra, but she popped the hammer. And it's a fluffy zebra. It's not like a plastic thing. It's it's soft and fluffy. And, yeah, she, she bashed it so hard it popped because she was into it. <laughs> and and then, then you get other people kind of helping out. And there, there was there was a there were a couple of performances where there were 60 people in and they all helped. I, one side was protecting the zebra. The other side was trying to trying to mash it up. So. It became like a Keystone Cops, just the audience of fighting. I mean, it looked really violent. It wasn't. No one was hurt, but it was great. I became the audience then, and they were, I was watching 60 people just smashing around, having a very weird time. And what was your experience of the Edinburgh Festival in general? Well, I've been I've been four times as as a comedian, three as Mr. Susie, but 20 years earlier I'd been as a student doing doing serious well some Shakespeare and I used to have a comedy double act so 1994 was my first year in Edinburgh so I sort of I feel a bit like a veteran um, and I I love it I absolutely love it it's the highlight of the year uh, but you, you do need you do need a strategy you, you need a battle plan it's uh, I've seen people go under I've se- yeah some people treat it like Nam. And they can they can still hear those choppers coming in months later, and that's not good. Uh, it's best not to be traumatised. But it. it's a beautiful thing. It's the biggest arts festival in the world, 
which not only means it's a real pleasure to to be part of it and to perform as part of it it's also you've got everything you could ever want to see i mean i I love it just as much as a punter as i do a performer because you can go and see an old woman in a wicker basket um singing songs from the war at two in the morning if you want to it's brilliant or or you can see uh, you could see anything you want to see and i love it it's such a buzz and it's a beautiful city anyway and you've performed both in free venues as well as uh, in paid venues so what advice would you give to acts who are going up to edinburgh and taking a show and performing either on the free fringe or in a venue where people need to buy tickets in advance i think if 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 you're new to it and you, it's your first festival and you're just starting then go with the free fringe um it's there are ups and downs attached to all strands of the free fringe uh, there are good venues there are not so good venues and there's a sliding scale of how much help or hindrance you'll get from various people i don't want to get too involved for fear of who's listening but uh, yeah i've had good and bad experiences on the free fringe uh, but yeah the, the good definitely outweigh the bad and you're not risking anything financially whereas the paid venues, whilst you, you'll have professional support and possibly even a flyering team and PR beneath you, it costs a fortune. And unless you're loaded, well, even if you're loaded, if, if you're new, it's a waste of money because you don't really know what you're doing. And, and there's no shame in that. Edinburgh, especially the free fringe, is all about just, just doing it. Just put on a show. Just do half an hour. If you insist on starting with an hour, then you're probably going to fail, but it'll be a noble failure but just just do it and so yeah I, uh, my advice would be do the do the free fringe first and possibly stay on the free fringe there's, there's no definite advantage to paying 10 grand to to be in one of the posh venues have you found that audiences are more accepting of an alternative style obviously you only performed um as mr susie during the fringe but in terms of seeing other kinds of shows did you find that audiences were more receptive to um, an alternative style? Um, I wouldn't say more receptive, no. I think there's a really healthy alternative scene in London and I've, I've performed fairly extensively in Brighton as well and I, I think my experience of audiences is if it's funny, then they're going to go with it. And you're sure you'll get people that are like, oh, he's... He's got a pink flappy top on. This is weird. I don't like it. It's weird. But you're going to get that anywhere. I think if you if you do it with the right spirit, and I'm not talking about me now, just if 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 you're confronted with something that is alternative, as long as it's got value in some sense, whether it's you know it's it's ripping into something, it's aggressively tearing down things that need to be torn down, or it's looking at something upside down, it, it, people are prepared to embrace an alternative comedic scene I, I find audiences generally incredibly giving would you ever perform in edinburgh as just straight stand-up or do you feel that now that you've uh, developed mr susie that's it for the kind of comedy persona that you would want to perform in front of a live audience yeah definitely i think the the i'm not going to stick with mr susie ad infinitum but i'm not going to go back to gigging as me uh, it will all uh, what I've I've done a couple of clown courses and they were very very useful and one of the things that came out of them was I'm I'm not a clown, and that I don't mean that 
to sound as negative as it might sound it, it that felt like a positive outcome in that yeah there's tools i can use here there's useful bits and pieces i've picked up and one of the useful things is understanding yeah i'm not a clown i'm i'm a comic actor and characters comic characters are the most fun for me in terms of what i do in the stand up com- comedy scene so yeah it would always be characters and and i'm i'm I had Ricky Tin as part of last year's show, small part, but I really enjoyed doing something that wasn't Mr. Susie. And there, there's a new part yet to give him a name, but um, yeah, he's he's a drunken old has been that's that's a complete wreck. And and a, again, in many ways, the opposite to Mr. Susie. So uh, yeah, and I, I can see I can see Mr. Susie having maybe a year off next year and going up with with something completely new. And you're also one third of the online sketch trio, The Exploding Heads, where you perform in an online football show called How Will They Line Up, which was for ESPN during the premiership season. So how have you found broadcasting to the online world? That is a a very big question. Um, There's many strands uh, in response to that. Uh, If I may, I will rewind to 2009. Uh, I don't know if you want this level of biographical detail, but... No, I do. (laughs) Okay. Uh, You may live to regret that. (laughs) So I started my professional career when I left university in 1994, and it never took off to the extent that I was in regular work. I always had to have temping positions, and some of those temping stints were long, gaps between comedy engagements and I wasn't doing stand-up then so they were like small parts in sitcoms or stage plays were few and far between and I was getting really miserable and I hit 30 and I still hadn't made it uh, and by make it I mean earning a living I, I'm not interested in being big or famous or spectacularly rich I just want to make a living doing this and and I wasn't even doing that and then I became ill I won't bore you with the details of it uh, it wasn't life-threatening but it was debilitating to the point where between 2006 and 2009 I couldn't do anything, nothing at all. Couldn't even watch TV. Um, so when you have like a a massive thing, put everything in your life on hold like that, I was forced to reevaluate every single aspect of what I was doing and where I was going. And the main thing professionally was, look, I'm I'm not getting any younger. I'm only here once. I have I do have this this dream to to use a Hollywood phrase. I really want to do this. Why am I not doing it? So with my wife's support, I vowed I would stop temping. I would go full-time acting and writing and just see what happened. And that's that's when I took up stand-up. That was part of that year of, right, just go for it. Just throw caution to the wind and go for it. But the biggest thing I did in 2009, apart from take up stand-up, was I did a, a an online spoof reality show called Debt Monkey. And we did, it was two of us working on it, so two of us writing, performing, editing, marketing, it was insane, and we did two episodes a week for six months, which which is mental. Um, and it was a spoof reality, we were satirising reality TV, the, the premise was um, a production company had taken over my character's debt, but in return they owned him for six months, so they filmed him 24 hours a day, seven days a week, and they gave him weekly tasks. And our crime, as it were, was we never told people it was fiction. We thought it was obvious, especially as it wore on, because it got more and more ridiculous and darker and darker. But we never 
admitted explicitly that this is fiction. And so we realised halfway through the run, half our fans were with us and knew that we were taking the mickey. Half our fans thought it was real. And the darker it got and the stranger it got, the more upset they became. And it was a very steep learning curve of how the internet is an amazing thing, but you have to sort of know what you're doing, especially if you're doing slightly risque things or extreme things. People, having having credited audiences with being very giving and very open and generally very intelligent, the internet takes in so much of, of the human species that sadly a lot of them will be too stupid to question anything and so a long-winded answer to your question is it's, it's great that technology is back in the hands of the creatives we don't we don't need to rely on commissioning editors or great big behemoth production companies we can get our stuff out there and we do the flip side is that there, there is no filter in terms of what's coming back in some of the trolling we get for how will they line up is well to me every bit as entertaining as the episodes if if it weren't so offensive and so impossible to broadcast we would make a show about the trolling that we get because it's mad and scary and kind of funny all in equal measure you were also in the young girl sketch which was for bbc comedy which is one of the most viewed online sketches for the bbc comedy channel and in general so what was your reaction to that when you saw how big a comedy sketch could be online without having been broadcast on television. Um, yeah, it's it's amazing that there. Uh, I I love the crew that did that. Uh, Andrew Gaynor directed it, who I think is a genius, and I would work with him at the drop of a hat on anything. And Tom Sturton as well. This is becoming a lovey fest now, but Tom Sturton is amazing in that, and I love I love totally Tom. So I don't want to denigrate the creativity involved in any way, shape or form. It's a very, very good sketch. There are cynical reasons why that is so viewed. The title is very provocative and Emily, who is a great actress, she's also very attractive and were she not in it, I don't think it would have two million hits and that's just being realistic. Uh, there are other sketches that I've made with Andrew that are as good, if not better, and they have a few thousand hits. So I think, yeah, the the internet is is the great leveller on so many fields. And one of them is, yeah, if it's, if it's got someone who's fit in it, then it'll be watched. And, you know, you have to sort of roll with, roll with those kind of punches. And having performed all around the country to all different types of audience, have you found that you have a favourite type of audience that you prefer performing to? Um, well, generally an audience that is playful, um, I think the stuff that I do, I, I'm, I'm both attracted to the clowning world and slightly uh, dubious. Is that the right word? There, there's something about clowning that I feel I don't un fully understand because I love the participatory elements of clowning and the empower the empowering elements of you've never been on a stage before, but I'm going to get you on stage and you're going to end up doing an amazing Elvis impression and you're going to love it and the audience are going to love it as well. The flip side of that is sometimes I can't tell the difference between empowering an audience and bullying an audience, and I'm, I'm struggling to learn where that line is. Now, I, I've made mistakes. I've picked on people that I shouldn't have picked on, and I've learned the hard way that 
you, you do need to be ultra sensitive when you're dabbing at an audience and trying to get a response that is wholesome and positive there will be people who for whatever reason maybe they've just had a really bad day they're just not up for it and and you have to know how much to 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 poke that wasp's nest and and not get stung um that was much cleverer than i thought it was going to be i'm not sure i understand it it's that clever <laughs> so yeah, the favorite kind of audience is is one that is playful and happy to engage but it's ultimately my responsibility to make sure they have a safe kind of playtime I, I i have and hopefully won't anymore led people into places they don't want to go and do you have a favorite type of venue that you prefer performing in um i i'm lucky in that i've, I've performed in a huge range of venues I, i've i've done massive theaters like huge 2000 seaters i've done tiny little rooms my first edinburgh as mr susie was in uh, a room that we christened the cupboard of death because it, it was a black hot cupboard it was literally where the staff keep their coats the rest of the year uh and they, those shows were great the, the everyone was on board they knew what they were getting into this is a horrible black sweaty box and we're suffering as much as the audience is and so they went for it so i can't say that i didn't like performing in there it was it was a great room uh, and last year i had my first experience of performing at festivals so doing stuff in a tent is a different challenge and a different kind of reward and i even did stuff outside at the festival so the the i was at festival so uh, the tent we were in had like it was like a big top inside but there was a stage that faced out and i think my favorite time at festival was just mucking about on that stage with like the whole range of 60,000 people wandering past and just me being an idiot um i love that so yeah i don't think i have a favorite venue i i, I like I like weirder venues. I love the Bethnal Green Working Men's Club because it feels like it's got history. It's it's like a it's a proper. I I, I don't mean to to criticize. It's not a criticism at all. But I like the tacky, faded glamour feel of that place. That feels totally right for Mr. Susie as well. And do you have any tips or advice for aspiring comedians, but also aspiring actors? It sounds cliche, but you've just got to do it. You've just got to get out there and do it. I, uh, I was lucky, if that's the right word, in that I my life was put on pause. I think without that, I may have carried on stumbling around, hoping for a big break, but not really doing that much to, to get it. Uh, there's, there's no comparison with just getting out there and doing it, especially with comedy. It's very easy to put on a night. It's very easy to get involved uh you just need a, a room above a pub. You don't even need a microphone. But just, just do it. Just absolutely do it. A acting is harder. Acting is much less of a meritocracy in that there's a lot of luck and a lot of networking needed. And that's that's a swear word for most people. But if, if you have the sensitivity to be a performer, you're unlikely to be good at the marketing and self-promotion side, which is the curse of most performers. I think most, most people with artistic leanings struggle with that side of things. Uh, but I think there's still there's still the fringe for actors. There's, there's still things that you can get involved in. But definitely comedy, just do it. Just be prepared to fail spectacularly. Get stuff horribly wrong. Have audiences hate you and enjoy the experience and then go back and do it again, but do it differently so that they hate you a bit less. <laughs> Hopefully, eventually they'll love you. And you studied English at Cambridge. So 
do you have any tips or advice for students? Well, uh, I have my director of studies at Cambridge hated me because by that time I knew I wasn't interested in academia anymore. I knew I wanted to be an actor. My parents had said they would support me financially through either university or drama school, but not both. So I knew I didn't have the option of going to drama school. So I milked the drama scene in Cambridge for all it was worth. I did two, three plays a term, every term, and almost no study. I have a printed report from the end of my first year. I should get it framed. It just says, from my director of studies, I find this student embarrassing and utterly unintelligent, which is a hell of a thing to write about a 19-year-old. Except he's probably right. I don't think I was unintelligent. I was certainly unmotivated for the academic side of things. But the flip side is I, I acted my little socks off. I loved it. I did everything I could possibly have wanted to do in terms of drama. I had a comedy double act back then. We were called Unnerving Plants. And that kind of um, fine-tuned my love of comedy performing. And, and, and back in Cambridge, I did a lot of classics. I did a lot of Shakespeare. And whilst I love that, I realised my strengths and my preference was for mucking about being an idiot. And uh, so, yeah, taught me before I started my professional career that the thrust of what I want to do and what I should do is, is comedy. And, and my heroes have always been people like... Stan Laurel, Peter Sellers, just people that are funny and, and can tap into funny mannerisms, funny vocal tics, funny observations, and I just want to, wanted to be them. So my advice to students would be um, treat it like finishing school. You, you should have a, some kind of sense of what you want to do. Even if you don't, then just just try stuff. Don't just go there and study that's boring uh, as long as long as you don't fail I'm not saying fail a degree but uh, I know plenty of people that came out with a 2-1 or even a first and did nothing else but study and they're full of regret and you can't you can't get old and have regrets when you're a student you are probably at your most stupid and inexperienced and that is the most fun time because university is a relatively safe environment for just being really violently stupid uh, and making all kinds of crazy mistakes. I, I did, and yeah, there's there's bits that make me blush and wish I hadn't done that, but I, I generally have no regrets. I had a fantastic three years. <laughs>